Well, let's just pray before we uh, dive into this uh, fascinating book of Daniel. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself and your purposes to us through your word. And we just pray that your Holy Spirit may speak to our hearts and our minds tonight, that we may receive what you want, to, want us to learn and uh, that we may take hold of your teaching and apply it to our lives and our service to you so that we may bring glory and honour to you in the way we live our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the weeks of this term, we've been on a journey. And it's been rather a fascinating journey because we've been looking at God, or God on mission in the Old Testament. In fact, even though we've been looking at the Old Testament, God's mission has not changed. It's a story. And just by way of introduction, let me say that is, it's not just God's story, it's our story. And all the way through scripture, we see God encouraging people to remember, to remember what he has done. It's, that was his message to the, the Israelites of old. Remember, teach this to your children. Remember the story of my work and your lives. So we started our journey with... Um, See if this is going to work. Hey, Stuart, what happened? There we are. <laughs> we started our journey with Adam and Eve. And when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them a command. He told them to go and go forth and multiply. Fill the earth. Fill the earth. And then later on, we read the story of Noah. The people sinned um, in such a way that God judged the world, sent the flood, and Noah and his family were among the people who were saved. When uh, the waters receded, God made a promise to Abraham in the form of the rainbow. He promised he wouldn't ever flood the world again, but he told Noah to actually go and fill the earth, multiply, okay? And be a witness to me, the Lord God. Tell people what I've done. But we, a little bit later on, a few chapters later, we see the, the Babel uh, episode. People decided to congregate together. In, they built a city. They started to build this great tower. And aside from all the issues involved in that, what they were doing was looking inwards. And so God intervened again, confused the language so that they couldn't work together anymore and they dispersed throughout the whole wide world. Again, here we see God's purpose for people to fill the, fill the world, fill the earth. Shortly after that, in Genesis 12, quick, yeah, there we go. We get to the account of Abraham. This is one of the pivotal episodes in biblical history, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, where God makes a covenant or a promise, a contract with Abraham. And he promised several things to Abraham. Do you remember what they were? Land, offspring, and blessing. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, mate. Good on you. He was going to be given a country. Offspring would become a nation. And Abraham, this is the key thing in this passage, was to be a blessing. He was blessed by God to be a blessing. It just wasn't to stay with Abraham. He was to bless 
the nations of the world that would flow from him. You see God's purpose? It's consistent. It flows through. So there we have Abraham. And this promise to, uh, for God to bless um, and for people to be a blessing carried through with the patriarchs all the way through to Jacob, Joseph. And then we find the people of Israel moving into Egypt and actually staying there for 400 years. And during this time, things change, they become slaves, and then God intervened miraculously in the time of Moses, who led the people out of Egypt. Again, we see God working amongst the people. He, over 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, he actually gave them laws, rules, to form them and shape them into a community of people. Um, he toughened them up in the desert, as you would over 40 years wandering around the wilderness, so that when they um, <coughs> invaded the land of Canaan, they were a considerably powerful army. Um, so they're an effective fighting force by that stage. But they had a mission. They were God's chosen people. They were chosen for a purpose. They were to represent God in this world. They were God's agents in this world. Abraham's covenant um, arrangement with God was still in effect. They were blessed as God's chosen people, but they were blessed to be a blessing to the nations of the world. And then, uh, me. we jump over to this invasion of the land of Canaan. The promised land. Um, the first time they, uh, sorry, one of the first events was this conquest of Jericho, this mighty city of Jericho. But God intervened here again. And um, a prostitute named Rahab had heard of the Israelites and she believed in the one true God that they worshipped. She protected the spies, and she and her family were actually saved when the city was demolished and destroyed. Uh, later on, in the period of the judges, we see Ruth, a Moabite, a non-Jew, um, also coming to faith in God. Two small incidents, but actually God is not only just in concerned about his chosen people, the Jews, the Israelites, but he had still had a heart's concern for non-Jewish people. You see how the message is, uh, God's purpose is still consistent. And then we moved on to the period of David and Solomon. It was sort of the, the, the empire of Israel at this time. And David and Solomon had um, considerable influence uh, at that time, we witnessed this in the uh, reign of Solomon when the Queen of Sheba, a country well to the south of Israel, came and visited Solomon because she'd heard about his wisdom and how God had blessed him with wisdom and she wanted to see for herself. And um, scholars seem to think that she returned to Sheba uh, with a belief in the one true God. So we can see, again, God reaching out to foreign nations. Unfortunately, the people of Israel repeatedly rebelled against God. They started worshipping idols and uh, forgot about 
their story, their history, their heritage as the people of God. And as the nation of Assyria rose to prominence in the 700s BC, we see God actually working again. He sends a prophet called, do you remember who we talked about last week? Come on, Dickie. Yes, spot on. Good on you, mate. Jonah. God asked Jonah to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, to preach to the Ninevites. Jonah had other ideas, but we won't go into all that. We talked about that last week. But what happened when Jonah went to Nineveh to preach? They repented. Yeah. And they averted God's judgment on the city. Here we see God, again, acting to take the message of the one true God to a pagan people. Um, now, this happened about 750 BC, but around in the early 700s, Assyria actually conquered the northern tribes of Israel. They actually deported many of the people in Israel. In fact, they spread them all around the place, particularly they took them back to Nineveh and surrounding parts of the world. And uh, the nation of Israel, the northern tribes, disappeared. But... Uh, the southern kingdom of Judah survived for some time until the Babylonian Empire rose. And so in about 586 BC, the Babylonians um, invaded the southern area of Israel, which was called Judah at the time. They um, invade, uh, conquered, sorry, demolished, destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple, the beautiful, magnificent temple that Solomon had built, leveled to the ground. And what they did was they deported the leaders of the people, the skilled workers, and took them back to Babylon. And the idea there was that they would be assimilated into the Babylonian way of doing things. The people, however, were given in Babylon, they were actually given limited freedom. They could work, they could live um, in communities and they tended to cluster together in enclaves or, or ghettos but they were not permitted to return to their native lands. So as part of this process we read, oh sorry there's Babylon, okay so it's a long way from Israel uh, and remember we actually visited Babylon a little while ago. Babylon used to be called, remember? Babel, same place, okay? Babel and Babylon are the same place. So here we go. We're in what is now modern-day Iraq in Babylon. And as part of this assimilation process, some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace, these guys were chosen to learn the language and the literature of the Babylonians. And after three years, this three-year period of training, they were then to enter into the king's service. And among those chosen were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. And in order to assimilate them and further remove their Jewish identity, they were then given Babylonian names. And so Daniel became Belteshazzar. Hananiah becomes Shadrach, Mishael becomes Meshach, 
And Azariah becomes, however you want to pronounce it, Abednego. Abednego. <laughs> and these guys were to be trained in the world of the Babylonians. And this world consisted of a lot of priests, of magicians, astrologers, philosophers. And the Babylonians had assembled one of the best collections of literature in the ancient world. And this literature included texts about omens and incantations, prayers, hymns, uh, myths and legends. And, but they also had uh, written works about the sciences. And they had scientific formulas for, for skills such as glassmaking and mathematics and astrology. Daniel and his friends, they were to study this literature, these ancient texts, and become masters of it. As, and as part of their training, hey, it was, wasn't all hard work because there were some benefits. They were assigned a daily amount of food from the king's table, food and wine. Now, this stuff was really good, like this top-rate stuff. It was beautiful food, best quality wine. However, Daniel, we read, resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And so he took a very brave step and he requested the official in charge, who was in charge of the guys being trained, and asked that he would um, only be fed vegetables and water. However, the official was rather worried about this request because if the king found out that he had not been looking after his charges, the guys that he was supposed to be caring for, then he could be executed. He'd lose his head. But God intervenes and he causes this official to look favourably upon Daniel and he agreed to Daniel's proposal, but with a qualification, because Daniel suggested that he and his three companions, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, be fed vegetables and water only, for 10 days. And then the challenge was to compare how well they looked, look at their health, their well-being, and compare that to the other young men who were for being fed the king's food and wine. And what do you know? Remarkably, after 10 days, Daniel and his friends looked healthier and better nourished than the rest of all the young men who ate the king's food. And so what did the official do? Guys, you've been thrilled with this. He only fed them vegetables and water after that. Now, you, now you've got to feel sorry for these other guys in the program, wouldn't you? But <laughs> here they were enjoying the best of food, best of wine, and all of a sudden these Israelite guys kind of said, hey, we're only eat vegetables and water from now on. So they kind of missed out, a <laughs> lot of them. So it wasn't a good look. And you can imagine some of the resentment against Daniel and his friends starting to bubble away there when um, the rest of these guys missed out on this top-rate food. But I just want to look at what was wrong with the king's food. Now, it wasn't that it may have been offered to idols, which is a problem for some in the early church, but it would appear from other passages that those who shared food from the king's table actually entered into a kind of a covenant relationship with him. By eating this food, they actually committed themselves to a friendship 
and so accepted that they had an obligation to be loyal to the king. It's like saying, you've heard the phrase, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Yeah? In other words, if someone buys you a meal, then there could be an obligation to repay their favour at some stage in the future. And Daniel realised that if he accepted the food and wine from the king's table, he would be obliged or bound to serve the king with loyalty and commitment. The food and wine would defile him in the sense that it challenged his freedom to be God's person. And so God honoured Daniel and his companions' commitment to him. In verse 17 it says that to these four young men God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And then at the end of three years of training, they were have, when uh, the king interviewed them to work out where they were going to be placed, uh, they were found to have no equal. And so they entered the king's service, and as verse 20 notes, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Now the point is not so much that Daniel and his friends were intellectually superior, but the source of their intellectual superiority and their practical wisdom, the source of all that was from God. And I reckon the writer is trying to stress that the gods of the Babylonians who supplied the wisdom to the Babylonians were no match for the God of Israel. So consequently, Daniel and his companions rose to places of incredible influence in this foreign land to which they'd been taken. Daniel didn't back down. or he didn't retreat in the little Jewish ghetto. Instead, he was an agent of God in bringing others to know God. He didn't withdraw from the society in which he found himself. Instead, he participated in it. And I reckon he had the hope that God would work through him to transform the Babylonians. As such... Here's a model for us in our attitude to the world in which we live. The message here is that this is God's world. And no matter who seems to be in charge, and we who are God's people, in this world that seems to be so ungodly, we must not let anything or anyone destroy our identity as God's people. We are to live in this world as agents of God, as representatives of God. And God wants us to influence and shape this world. But we will choose not to be defiled by this world. Daniel reminds us as Christians in today's world that because we have been bought by the blood of Jesus, we must not allow ourselves to be bought by another at any price. We must not give way. We must stand firm. Rather, we must live for Jesus. Now, the second part of Daniel I want to look at today, tonight, is chapter 3. And Ashley did such a wonderful job of reading to us. Thanks, Ash. At some stage in his career, our friend King Nebuchadnezzar made this enormous called image, plated in gold. And this thing 
was 30 about 30 meters tall three meters wide you know how tall that is there's tower outside that's 20 meters tall add another half of that again on top and about it's about the same width three meters so this is what we're not told what it looks like what it looked like but it was built on the plain of Shinar and it could be seen from a long way away it really stood out but then the king made this decree or gave this order and he said that whenever people heard musical instruments playing I won't go through the list everyone was to bow down and worship this massive image thing that he built and failure to do so would result in their being thrown into a furnace they would be incinerated burned alive now this order was a great concern to the Jews, particularly Jews like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego because they, they had positions of authority by this stage in the wider province of Babylon and to bow down before the image will be tantamount to recognising Nebuchadnezzar and his gods and so the young men refused to do so. Just one better point, we don't find Daniel in this account um, the end of chapter 2 we're told that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were actually appointed to positions of authority in the province of Babylon but Daniel remains in the service of the king in the royal court. Now at this stage there was no shortage of people who harboured resentment against the Jews probably because of the vegetable episode but that might have started it and so they were watching for an opportunity to get back at them, to persecute them to cause some difficulties and so they noticed their conscientious objection to worshipping this image and so they raced to the king and report, they told the king that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were not worshipping the image that the king had made but then in verse 16 in chapter 3 we read these incredible words, brave words because here we are, King Nebuchadnezzar, the mighty king, the ruler of the Babylonian Empire, who had the resources and the ability to make a, a um, 30 metre high image. And they said, King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 16, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. Well, understandably, the king wasn't too happy about this. In fact, he was furious with them. And he ordered the strongest men in the army to tie them up and throw them into the furnace. Now, why they had to be the strongest men in the army, we're not told, but... I can imagine they had to be strong because they got the ropes and tied them tight. We're told that they were thrown into the furnace fully clothed in all their robes and turbans and everything else. Interesting point. And the king, being so angry, he actually uh, just wanted to really make a point at this stage. So he's ordered the furnace to be fired up, make it seven times hotter than normal. And then the, the uh, soldiers carried the three men up into the entrance to the furnace and threw them in. But the flames were so hot, they were incinerated. They were killed. That's the guards. 
And then something amazing, something remarkable happened. The king saw not three, but four men walking around inside the furnace. And it says the fourth looked like a son of the gods. Now the term son of the gods was probably just a way of saying something supernatural or something which cannot be explained. Some people have speculated that this other figure was actually Jesus. Or perhaps it was an angel sent by God. We're not told. But what was, what was understood through the presence of this son of the gods was that somehow God was present with these three men. He had sent help and rescued them. But King Nebuchadnezzar, seeing this, he approached the opening of the furnace and called them out with these words, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And when they came out, they were found not to have a hair singed, all their clothes were intact, they were not charred and they didn't even smell of smoke. The upshot of all this was that Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and he made the worship of him legal in the Babylonian Empire. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were also then appointed to high positions of authority in the province of Babylon. We're not told whether Nebuchadnezzar believed in the one true God but he acknowledged the God of the Hebrews. And I, I can imagine him just sort of putting our God on the shelf along with all the other gods. But the, by making the, uh, the worship of God legal across the Babylonian Empire meant that the, uh, God's people were kept safe and meant that they could worship freely. It also meant that they could be a witness to the Babylonians. And again, we see God's purposes in his mission to reach the nations of the world is facilitated by this incredible act of intervention. Um, so again, God in mission in the Old Testament. Now, the cost and glory of discipleship you know, each of the three men would have known that there would be a cost to be paid. Living for God in Babylon undoubtedly meant persecution and suffering at some time, even though they were in positions of authority and privilege. But in this incident, we see these three guys stand up for what they believed. The incident in the furnace proved to them another great truth that they undoubtedly knew in theory that no matter what happens to the godly, God will be there with them. They showed that they were prepared to trust God, even to the point of death. They believed that God would be with them no matter what. Now, it was hard living in Babylon and believing in the one true God in that environment, the pagan environment. Living in Babylon was like living in a world opposed to God and his reality. But there were two choices in Babylon faced by Daniel and his friends. They could compromise by turning away from God and becoming Babylonians, absorbed by the culture, into the culture. Or 
they could stay true to God and risk their lives and success. Everything around them pointed to the first alternative as the better choice. However, their knowledge of God and his reality pointed them towards the only other alternative. When they looked a bit harder at Babylon, and they knew Babylon, and they looked at its false religion, they knew there was absolutely no choice. It was a no-brainer. Anything else was not only a denial of truth and of their identity, it was also great foolishness. We must be careful not to misread this chapter. God's rescue of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego is proof that he does exist and that he is able to rescue. But he did not have to come to the rescue. It's important to understand that. In some cases, God does not come to the rescue of his saints. God doesn't give any guarantees about rescuing us from suffering, from persecution, from oppression. What he does do is that he guarantees about where he will he guarantees us about where he will be when we do suffer. He will be right there with us. And that's the point of the fourth figure in the fire. When God's people suffer for God's purposes and for God's glory, he will never leave them. He will never leave us alone. Now, it's never easy being a Christian believer in our world. Being a Christian makes us distinctive. It makes us different. We, if we don't, we should stand out in the crowd. We should be noticed as different because of our beliefs and practices. Christians stand out because we believe in God and we think that others should too. We are sometimes perceived to be bigoted, thinking that we alone have the right understanding of who God is and how to relate to him. Christians believe that other religions have nothing to do with reality and that Jesus is the only way to know God, that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. And if that were enough, we cling to a book that was written over 20 centuries ago, believing that it is the definitive guide for faith and conduct. Furthermore, Christians live life differently. We openly reject many of the practices of those that surround us, at work, in our neighbourhoods. We spend our time reading our Bibles, attending church, and going out at night to study the Bible and pray with our friends. And unlike many others in today's world, Christian believers respect authority and obey the law, and refuse to take revenge on those who are malicious towards us. Cheating in exams, or using illegal means to avoid paying tax, those things are considered inappropriate, or just plain wrong. Christian believers do not believe in lying to the boss, and do, and do believe in the importance of keeping their word. Trust is important, honesty is important. Christians are not afraid of acknowledging and confessing their shortcomings or wrongdoing openly and publicly. And they do not think that they are the centre of the universe or that the aim of life is pleasure and its pursuit. 
They don't follow commonly accepted patterns in sexual behaviour or get tied up with the excesses of their friends in other areas. On all accounts, Christian believers are odd people. We're odd. We're different. We're somewhere out of place in this modern world. We are people that threaten our world by our beliefs and our practices and who by our words and our actions call the world and the people in it to stop rebelling and change direction. Christians know why they are the way they are. They have met God in Jesus Christ. And in him we've come to know reality. We know that the world is God's and that the only way to live in it is in relationship to him. We've found life and its full meaning in Jesus. But look at the alternatives. When we look around at the world, we are confirmed in our decision to live with and for God because of the futility of the alternatives. Christians stand in stunned amazement at people who live primarily for what they can earn, bowing and scraping to their bosses in the hope of gaining advancement or prestige. They're incredulous that someone should live life at the beck and call of some transitory master, committed to ambitions, careers, possessions and their own little kingdoms at the cost of a relationship with God and true, vital, reconciled relationships with other people. Christian believers joined with their master in his immense sorrow that people should spend their lives gaining the world only to lose their own souls. There really is no choice. As God's people... Christians know that there is nothing as ridiculous as man-made religion, no matter what name it goes by. We know that there is really no choice than to commit ourselves to the real God and to the reality that comes through his son, Jesus Christ. Christians know that we can no longer live as fools, thinking that reality can be found in money, in sex, in pleasure, in possessions or in careers. But there is a cost, a cost to be paid for reality because we realise that choosing Jesus is costly. We have seen it often in the lives of those who have lived for God before us. Moreover, we've seen it in the life of our Lord Jesus. The people people of God know that commitment to God and his kingdom places us at odds with the kingdoms of this world. And like Paul, we know that everyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. Reality comes with the cold, hard nails of the cross. So we cling on to the words of Jesus who said that whoever seeks to save their life shall lose it and whoever loses their life for the sake of Jesus and the gospel shall save it. We know that the cost involved in being God's people is worth it. We have the sort of life that goes on forever in unequaled, unparalleled quality rather than the transitory life that our peers are chasing. But that cost comes with an overarching comfort. For those of us who have decided to pay the cost of following Jesus, God promises to be with us no matter what. 
no matter in what circumstances we find ourselves. And he says he will remain firm and true to us as we remain firm and true to him. He will be with us in our times of deepest need. And what is more, the time will come when he will show up all the futility and the foolishness for what it is. And reality and truth will eventually triumph. If we are Christian believers, we stand in direct line with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, with Daniel, with Jesus, with Stephen, with Paul and countless others throughout the ages who have chosen to follow God. And as we stand in that line, we must realise that at some time in our lives, their stand may become our stand and their words, our words. For some of us, it will be in the office, the workplace, amongst our friends and the like. And here the cost may be our reputation, friendships, promotions, jobs, even livelihood. For some believers, the cost has been or will be made in the face of persecutions with instruments of death and torture. Here the cost will be pain, disfigurement and perhaps even death. When he read a short time ago of people, Christians in a bus in Egypt, the bus was pulled up by Muslims who ordered them to come out one by one and if they claimed to be Christian, they were shot one after the other after the other. That's today's reality. Reality comes with a price. And no matter what it is for us, should God call upon us to suffer for being his, he will stand with us. He won't desert us. He won't leave us alone. He'll be with us just as he was with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. He will walk with us in the midst of the fire as he did with these saints of old. God's purposes have not changed down through the centuries. God still desires that all people should come to know him and his saving grace through the cross of Jesus. And God calls us. <laughs> There's a queer squeaky board here, Stu. <laughs> That's better. <laughs> God calls us as Christian believers to join with him in this mission to the world. We're not exempt. It hasn't been completed. But we have a, a, a purpose to reach out to our neighbourhood, to this community of Oran Park, to every home in Oran Park indeed. We have a message of new life. And that message needs to go out to our community, to the greater Southwest to the world. We've prayed for some of the countries tonight in this world where persecution and oppression are severe. That is our role. That is our purpose. And we see it all the way from Adam and Eve all the way through the story of the Bible. Can I encourage you to make this your prayer? Ask God to show you where he wants you to serve him in this mission of his. May we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, are, we thank you for what we can learn from Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, from Daniel and how they stood firm for you in the face of incredible opposition. We thank you that through their witness that 
amazing things happened to bring your word, to bring the truth of your reality to nations. We pray for the nations around the world where persecution and suffering is a daily experience for the believers. And we ask firstly that you would protect them. We know that you've promised to stand with them, Lord. But we pray that through their faith and their witness that the powers of darkness may be bound down and defeated. That light may shine into countries where great darkness is experienced. Lord God, we pray that your gospel message of faith, of grace, may come to be known by all people. This is our heart's desire, Lord. And may we be honoured and privileged to be a part of seeing your glory come to our neighbourhoods and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, Q&A, awesome. Questions? <laughs> when supper? Yeah. <laughs> no questions. Okay, that was easy. Uh, we don't know. He, it was, um, he was still in the royal court. We, we read that in the, at the end of chapter 2. Um, whereas the others were serving in the province of Babylon. So they sort of had the, like public officials, council officials, if you like, uh, in the wider community. And I guess they had more exposure to these astrologer guys who were jealous of them, obviously. And uh, probably more visible. Um, in their refusal to, to bow down at the uh, at the statue, so yeah, Daniel sort of we don't see Daniel in this story, but he's we find Daniel in chapter two, we find Daniel Daniel in chapter four, um, but we don't find Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in those chapters. So <laughs> it's a strange book, is <laughs> Daniel, but it's uh, again showing God's um, purpose and mission to the Babylonian Empire. This is how we got to influence, again, another nation, a foreign nation, a non-Jewish nation. Yeah, amazing.